0: Welcome to Season 2 of Purdue University College of Science's Superheroes of Science podcast. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. We will be discussing anything and everything related to science. If you have a science question, tweet it to us at Purdue SOS, and we will try and find someone to answer it for you. Welcome to Superheroes of Science. We're here today with Professor Andy Fried from the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences at Purdue. So welcome, Andy. Uh, thanks very yes, much welcome. for inviting me. Mm-hmm. Let's start with, well, your Earth, Atmospheric, Planetary Sciences and so let's start with what you are i suppose currently studying because i think part of what you study has changed over time
1: it has so yeah i'll, I'll claim two of the three i'm earth and planetary <laughs> <laughs> okay. i don't do much too much atmosphere though i do teach about it um mm-hmm. but uh yeah uh actually i i, I my work has e- evolved but i continue to do a mix of terrestrial uh, mostly with earthquakes and planetary science mostly with impacts uh, since we have the beautiful moon behind mm-hmm. us we can talk about impacts first okay. actually you can you can see the craters here
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, so if you think about it those craters are caused by uh, asteroid impacts maybe some are comets. Mm-hmm. but why do the craters look the way they do it's because of the size and speed of the asteroid and it's because of the properties of the moon, or whatever other planets being hit. Uh, what's its its temperature? Its uh, its rheology, meaning it's the strength of its rocks, uh, its crustal thickness, all all sorts of things like that, right? So, what my group does is we work on uh, numerically simulating the entire impact process, and in doing that, we try and figure out well what were the conditions, what size was the impactor, uh, that give us the shape of the crater and the size of the crater and the depth of the crater that we see today. So, in a sense, we use these craters as time machines to travel back Mm -hmm. in, because most of them are more than 4 billion years old. And, And that means that what we're inferring is not what the properties of the moon are today, but the properties of the moon and the things flying around, hitting the moon mm-hmm. 4 billion years ago. So it's kind of wow. time travel using computer modeling constrained by, you know. Why are most I mean, of the impacts
0: that we're seeing on the moon there, why are they 4 billion? Why aren't they newer? Is it, are we still getting craters on the moon from things like that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. You can imagine that uh, early in the solar system when the planets were being formed by what we call accretion, by all collisions, and all the material was collecting up from dust, to little planetesimals, to protoplanets, to planets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there was It was a shooting gallery. So early in the solar system, there was just a lot more material flying around until it was collected up or got into stable orbits like mm-hmm. the asteroid belt or something like mm-hmm. that. So, yeah, the moon is still being hit, but uh, most of the, the objects are pretty small. Uh, big hits are few and far between. Uh, so... Just about every big crater you see on the moon there is quite a few billion years old. Oh wow! Because there's a lot of craters on there. Oh yeah, e- every inch of the moon basically has been hit. It's we call no this kidding. we call it we call it a saturated surface, meaning that any any new uh, asteroid that hits will basically erase another asteroid. Mm-hmm. Like now, it'd be part of this one, part of mm-hmm. that one, cover over this one with some ejecta. In the end, the average topography of the moon is not changing anymore as it continues to get hit. I mean, yes, you can see that's a newer hit and that's a newer Mm -hmm. hit, but the average, because it's just been hit so much.
0: So so you said two things that struck questions. First, you said my group. What do you mean when you say my group studies?
1: Oh, so, well, I collaborate with other faculty members, uh, especially like uh, Professor Brandon Johnson, who just joined us from Brown. Uh, and we both have graduate students, okay. and, and undergraduates, that work and help us with the modeling. Uh, the undergraduates help us with actually mapping out uh, the features that we see on the planets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, it's a group effort. It's, okay. In
0: the second question that uh, I immediately thought of is,
1: uh,
0: how are you hypothesizing this? Some things, when I hear like planetary geology side of some things, I'm like, okay, we look to see how erosion patterns and weathering happens here, and then we see pictures of Mars or wherever, and we make inferences. But we don't have pictures of craters here. So how are you jumping to conclusions or making decisions in your model on the moon?
1: Well, we do have craters here. Oh, Right. There's uh, 170 about recognized craters on the Earth. Okay. Did you know one of them is only a, an hour north of here? Ken okay, Quarry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, of course, it doesn't look like a crater because uh, no, 12,000 years ago, the glaciation swiped mm. the top 300 meters from it. But we can actually go there and we can see inside the crater. So here's a great example. Some of the craters there, you'll see a little peak in the center if they're mm-hmm. big enough mm-hmm. and if they're not covered with, uh, with lavas. So those are known as uh, complex craters with a, with a central peak. And we have, um, we have models that try and explain them and understand them. But we actually, when we go into the Kentland Crater to the north, it's kind of neat because while it would be nice to see the nice crater topography, mm-hmm. by scraping it clean, we're actually able to walk deep down inside a crater that's normally covered by a lot of rock. And here's a good example. In uh, Indiana, which doesn't have much in terms of tectonic activity, So we have sediment, sedimentary basins. So any place you go, you see like the stratigraphy. Everything's mm-hmm. just nice and flat. If you get a nice road cut, you'll see here's a layer, here's a layer, here's a layer. Yeah. You go to Kentland Crater, and you go to see where they've you know, blasted the walls to do basically a kind of a road cut, and mm-hmm. all of the layers are they're flipped up. Yeah. They're almost wow. 90 degrees. It's the only place in all of Indiana with, with that kind of stratigraphy. Yes. And it's because, and the models explain it, that as that crater formed, that the material that was flat got in the peak got rotated up. So you see that in the models, and now you can go to a place like Catlin, and wow, it's right there. So there is some ground truth here.
0: Okay. So I've heard you talk a little bit about the computer modeling. What's involved in that? And what sorts of things do your like graduate students and undergraduate students do in terms of computer modeling?
1: Because it sounds really interesting. Sure. So the, the, the modeling sophisticated, in fact, what we model is the entire evolution of, of, of an impact. So that means from the moments an asteroid hits, mm-hmm. what it does is it pushes down. It, it's, you know, the contact... Phase mm-hmm. and uh, and then it starts excavating and material gets thrown out and you develop this huge, very deep transient crater. But it's so deep that, that the topography can't can't survive. So things bounce up, sides collapse. Uh, so that's a modification stage. All that takes place for a big crater like you see on the moon in a couple of hours, right? Which wow. so you'd think. I mean, it's still a lot of time, but it's, it's, that seems like it's really, really long. Okay. Long time. okay. These are huge. In fact, the biggest basins that you see there are the big the big circles. Those are uh-huh. huge impact basins that have
0: Those dark spots? Yes.
1: Those were later filled with lavas called maria. The the lavas themselves, by the way, have nothing to do with the the impact process. Mm. They are uh, hundreds of millions of years younger those those lavas. Wow you can tell because if you look at those you see how there's hardly any craters inside any small little mm-hmm. craters okay but are su- every all the surrounding gray areas are have a lot of craters mm-hmm. so by counting craters you actually get an idea of the relative age of objects on a mm-hmm. surface that you know with atmosphere with without an atmosphere or needs to preserve so we know that all of those uh, those lava filled impact uh, areas are all um, hundreds of millions of years younger.
0: How do we know that those dark spots are lava?
1: Oh, well, first of all, we've sent uh, astronauts there. And so that's, actually, that's some of the spots oh, yeah.
0: that they've landed and actually like, taken yeah. the
1: cores and stuff? Yeah, yeah. So it's oh. it's basalt. It's very similar to uh, what we get uh, on our seafloors here. Hmm. And, uh, and, and chemically, it's actually uh, much closer in, in chemistry and density to the mantle of the Earth than it mm-hmm. is to the crust because the crust has a... Another long process of um, it used to be an ancient magma ocean that slowly cooled, which left you a very different type of uh, of chemistry. It's very different from from the lavas that fill that. Uh, where were we going with this? With the
0: computer modeling. Oh yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we have we have one type of computer model, and this is where Brandon Johnson's group really does. The this type of modeling, uh, using a code that can handle the very high pressures and temperatures associated with impact. It's a real shock mm-hmm. physics type of code. Mm-hmm. But then um, the codes that I developed are, okay, so that's two years. But then at the end of those two years, you have this basic shape, but it's still really hot. And there's very different pressures going on, you know, uneven pressures. So. In the tens to hundreds of millions of years afterwards, the whole thing relaxes. It, it cools down and things adjust as pressures kind of equilibrate. It, it takes tens of millions of years for it to cool down? Oh, it can take... Out in space? It, it can take a hundred million years. Well, remember <laughs> that only the surface is exposed to space, right? Yeah. Everything else, the interior of the moon is nice and warm. So you have this... Today, tr- it's, it's warm and... Oh, yes.
0: Oh, oh yes, I just Go assumed ahead. it no, was a big old dead rock. Oh yeah, oh rock.
1: there. I mean, we oh, there's we yeah. still. I mean, we we think there still might be a, a partially molten uh, liquid core in the in the moon. Really, but it is. Wow. Co- I'm going to
0: give up my planetary shirt. <laughs> it has
1: <laughs> it has cooled down tremendously in the four billion years, but it is not a dead rock. In fact, we are we we record moon crakes, moon quakes when 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 the astronauts landed, the Apollo, Apollo astronauts landed, they actually put seismometers down. For reasons that no one still understands, they they turned them off. But we're, there's a big project to, to put more seismometers back on the moon. Hmm. Those, uh, those seismometers recorded moonquakes. Some of them were due to impacts, but others, much too deep, are uh, probably associated with the fact that the moon is still cooling. And what happens to things when it cools Mm -hmm. it contracts Mm -hmm. and when it contracts the surface area has to decrease well how do you do that you do that by creating thrust faults and there are thrust faults on uh, on the moon that we can tell are quite young and we think are still going we see the same with with mercury too so the whole planet is contracting it's still continuing to cool holy cow that's real (laughs) cooling is such an inefficient process that the moon will probably still be cooling long after the sun has gone uh, red giant. Really? Uh, and yeah. It'll be many, many billions of years. So Oh, my gosh. Uh, I had no idea.
0: <laughs> not very often when I'm like speechless in one of these interviews, because usually I know yeah. enough of the basic science. But, yeah, you, you have yeah. caught me off guard yeah. this time. You really did. Yeah.
1: So since that process is very inefficient on the big scale, it's also very inefficient when you have a big impact basin. So Good. those basins, uh, and we can calculate uh, about how long it's taken, uh, but basically on the order of, you know, 50, you know, you know, 50 uh, million years to really cool. You want to get all the way back to the original background temperatures. You've got to go mm-hmm. to a few hundred million years. Uh, so there's a whole nother computer code that you have to use. To, to do the cooling and other types of adjustments. What I mean by adjustments are, uh, you know how, uh, pressure underneath the surface of the earth will drive water. It'll also mm-hmm. drive rock that's very pliable. When the mm-hmm. rock is warm, these pressures will drive the rock. So that'll change. You'll actually get a change in topography uh, due to, you know, while that's going on. So what we do is we do this, the first code that does the impact process for two years, and we come up with a, final configuration, a temperature profile, a geometry, the density profile, and we feed that in to this other code as the initial conditions, and then we let the calculation continue. So it's a real group effort. Now, the grad students that we're training now, we're teaching both codes. So we have some grad students who are doing like the complete evolution for for impacts on the moon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another grad student is doing the same for Mercury. Another one is doing for Pluto. Uh, so it's a real it's a real nice group group effort. That modeling is a bit sophisticated. Uh, so uh, 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 the, under- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the undergraduates don't don't do the modeling, but um, the faulting I talked about during the process of, of cooling, plus the process of adding volcanics later on, mm-hmm. and then the volcanics cool and and contract, and that causes faulting. Uh, the, we use uh, we we utilize uh, undergraduates have great talent to go in learn GIS and start mapping what the faults mm-hmm. look like are they thrust faults are mm-hmm. they normal faults are so they, We're actually using GIS
0: to map the fault lines of the moon.
1: Well, we have the we have pictures right, but they have to the pictures they go in they bring the pictures into GIS and then use the GIS tools to map them. Okay. And so that, how, how are the faults? Are they compressive or extensional? Are they located like radially coming out from the center of an impact basin? Or are they like circumferential? And all of these things tell us a lot about the stress state while it was cooling, which then helps us understand, you know, we, we use again those to constrain models. In other words, the models better be able to predict those faults. What
0: language are you computing this in?
1: Yes feature <laughs> yeah,
0: two, no, I it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, read it on your head.
1: Uh, that's a good question. So the the um, the codes are written in a in actually uh, in a binary language. The code that I use that I don't have access to the actual because it's a commercial code. Mm-hmm. But we use a lot of uh, Fortran and and Pylith and C to to develop. Uh, User subroutines that we that we you know use with the code and such um, The code that Brandon Johnson's group uses I don't know if it might be Fortran at its center or C. I'm actually not sure because mm-hmm. I don't do the coding in that, but The, the people actually do the coding It's pretty sophisticated um,
0: yeah. So you're bringing to the table of understanding the impacts and the Evolution of what happens after an impact. I guess I'm sure that's not the right word, but no, oh, it is. It is. Oh.
1: We, we, we say that we model the complete evolution of the impact from so, from initial contact to, to what yeah. it looks like today.
0: But you're bringing to that table, um, to that whole area of research, a lot of background okay. that you have in plate tectonics. And so, what did you? What was the science that you were had very vested in before you
1: started applying it? Oh, sure. Actually, to to tell you the truth, you really want to go to the background. So the type of coding that I do, it's called finite element modeling. Um, Finite element modeling is a type of modeling that is done on every single product you've probably ever purchased or ridden or flown over. What it does is anytime you want to build something, you want to build a car, you want to build an Mm -hmm. airplane, you want to build a building, you want to know is this structure going to work? If you build a table, right, mm-hmm. and you know, you're know you gonna mass produce a table, you wanna make sure that if you put something on that table, it's not gonna like bend <laughs> too much. Right? Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. And so there's hundreds of thousands of engineers out there who, who do use finite element codes to study numerically how all these objects will work, how they'll survive, how they'll age, and based on that modeling and uh, in prototypes, that will lead to the products that you actually end up buying and seeing. So before I came back to school to, to work in planetary science and geophysics, I used to model um, rockets and spacecrafts. With what? In, yeah, I was an engineer working for uh, for companies that, that design... Uh, Including the space shuttle solid rocket boosters. Dude, I knew you're smart. (laughs) I know you're like a rocket scientist. Wow Yeah, so I Used to to be a rocket scientist. Yeah, now now I'm a planetary scientist Um, (laughs) So I learned I learned the trade so to speak I learned how to use those type of models and the thing is about those types of codes once you learn how to use them and apply them then even if the codes change it's the same, it's still the same methodology, the same kind of inputs. You need to know the geometry, you need to know the material properties, you need to know how things are loaded. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how those inputs go in are different, and, and how they, the, the solutions come out look a little different. But the, it's the basic, once you learn one, mm-hmm. you, you really know how to do the other. So, uh, yeah, so I, I did that for 10 years, and then um, before deciding to switch and go back and do mm-hmm. geophysics... And then, yes, I studied earthquakes, and I used finite element modeling to simulate earthquakes. And my interest there was, um, you might be familiar that uh, an earthquake occurs because uh, you have plate tectonics. So plates move on the surface of the earth. They rub against each other. Some go under other ones. Some Mm -hmm. go side by side. And uh, the weak areas between them are known as faults. And uh, as the plates move, uh, you build up stress on those faults until some threshold is built and exceeded and then the fault breaks and stress is relieved and the plates are allowed to move. Yeah. But earthquakes don't just relieve stress, they, or- they reorganize it. So while it does relieve stress on the fault, earthquakes actually can increase stress in neighboring areas. And the increased stress in the neighboring areas is one of the reasons we get aftershocks.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: <clears throat> but it's also a reason why we might get another really big earthquake nearby. If you have another fault or the continuation of this fault, uh, and you had an earthquake here, it might stress the fault down here. And then stress has been building up on that. It could trigger a big earthquake sometimes those that triggering of earthquakes doesn't happen right away it could take it can take a few years or a few decades but it's not a hundred years or a thousand years which is the which is how often earthquakes usually occur on these faults so what my work did is it actually studied how stress is transferred in a way that can cause a sequence of big earthquakes Mm -hmm. because historically we do have sequences of big earthquakes so we can understand why that sequence occurred then we can look at more modern day new events and we'd say, okay, we just had a big earthquake here. Did we just increase our earthquake hazard over here now? Are we liable to maybe get a big earthquake here? Mm -hmm. And if we can understand that better, then we can better prepare for where the next earthquake is going to be. Uh, Because earthquakes, they they all seem to occur in these sequences, and then it goes quiescent for a while as stresses build up. Mm -hmm. And then, boom, you get this cluster again. Mm -hmm. So it's not just random. So it, we can't
0: predict when an earthquake is going to happen, but if, are you telling me that we can kind of predict that one will occur in a certain area based
1: on? Yes, we. so it's very good. So prediction, you can think of prediction as where, how big, and when. And what we're getting really good at at is where and how big. Okay. But when mm-hmm. is very <laughs> very difficult.
0: Do we see similar patterns like what's what happens on Earth on the Moon
1: or so is we it a different kind. D- right. So we don't have. Uh, first of all, there's since there's not plate tectonics on the Moon. Oh, there okay. is, there is tectonics in the sense that uh, tectonic simply means any deformation going on mm-hmm. near the at the surface. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So. Uh, because of the fact that there's moon, moon quakes and we see faults that have developed. Uh, there is tectonics, but it's one solid okay. plate. It's okay. got a little breaks here and there, so that it's very different. And once we actually do put seismometers on the moon and we monitor more of it, we will see some similarities, okay. but we'll see a lot more differences because it's a very different setup. Okay. Uh, but it'll be interesting. We. We're, we're, we're ready to go, right? We, we've learned a lot from the <laughs> Earth. So we really yeah. would like to have seismometers on the moon and see the faults and, and, uh, and, and see what we can learn by analogs, yeah. the same way we do like, with Mars and, and, and others. That We have a lot of analogs on Earth to what happens on Mars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of analogs on Earth to what happens on the moon, but we don't really have the data yet to, to really hmm. to go more, more forward. Oh, wow. But we do have craters, right? We do have impact craters. So. All right. That makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. I've only heard of one or two. I didn't realize we had a yeah, bunch of
1: them. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: That we could study. But I, I don't There's so many things I want to ask you because it's like, it, it's kind of, whoa. But um, I, I want to make sure we get in the interview to talk about one of the classes that you teach. Are sure. you still teaching the Geoscience in the Cinema? Oh, sure. Every it's every like day. one of the most demanded classes on campus. And it's I, I hear nothing but good things about it. So what is that this class about?
1: Sure, I I, I do want to add though that um, I I also teach uh, uh, so that's EAPS 106 Geosciences in the Cinema. Okay. I also teach EAPS 105 the Planets. And what I'm very proud of is I've also grown the Planets class. Now both of them take up the largest lecture hall class of class of 50 room 224. They both fill every semester. No way. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. In fact, in the fall I actually will teach them literally back to back.
0: Oh so, my gosh.
1: so it's 470 students in out for new 470 students oh my in goodness. holy cow yeah. so it's fun so it's uh man yeah and what's nice is they're both electives they're both science electives yeah and, and they're, so they're filling they're yeah. filling so they're not required i mean they do help students fulfill their electives so but, what are
0: both of them about what what's if, if I was a high school student and sure. i thinking, oh, that could be an elective I want, yeah. what, what is it about? So,
1: so geosciences in the cinema uh, is a natural hazards class. So earthquakes, volcanoes, tsunami, uh, asteroid impacts, tornadoes, mm-hmm. hurricanes, climate change. And what we do is um, we basically look at clips from movies. And uh, and I'll put clips in front of the students and I'll say, okay, is this, is this right? Do you think this works? What do you think is wrong with this clip? And, uh, and then we discuss it. We separate fact from fiction, and that gives us an ability to then uh, explore the, the background science, uh, the predictable science, how to keep yourself safe. Every week, the students will watch... Uh, one particular disaster movie, because we'll do like one whole week on tsunamis, one whole week okay. on volcanoes. Mm-hmm. They'll watch a movie uh, outside of class, uh, and 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 I'll have them... There's a movie worksheet that will look for things so that we can talk about the certain depictions. But then I'll also, when talking about tsunamis, for example, um, I'll bring in clips from another oh, 15 films, and we'll do fact from fiction in each. Sometimes... What's great too is sometimes the depictions are amazing and they're fantastic and, and, they're, and they're really educational and say, like, this is how it is. And then really? other times they're just over the <laughs> top. <I> mean, <laughs> thousand foot tall waves that are just ridiculous. Yeah. And, uh, and that just, what's nice too is as the students learn what is realistic and what's not, they actually get the humor in, uh, in these no. clips that are supposed to be serious. <laughs> but are just outrageous. Mm -hmm. Like the movie San Andreas, which came out a few years ago. And there's a tsunami in there caused by a big earthquake on the San Andreas Fault. And by the time I got finished discussing, A, how the San Andreas Fault is, first of all, mostly on land. Second of all, a strike-slip fault that cannot cause a tsunami. Third of all, where it does cross the water is basically just about underneath the the Golden Gate Bridge. So it's not going to cause one out at sea. Fourth could not nearly be no wave could be as high as it as it's shown without breaking way out at sea. Mm-hmm. And on and on. And so actually when it, then by the time I get to show them the clips, they're just laughing at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because they understand so how awesome. ridiculous it is. And then that yeah. th- then I know okay, they get it. Yeah. That that is not a realistic depiction. So um, So it's a lot, of, a lot have, of fun class. Yeah, and we have a lot of fun with it. And we yeah. do experiments in the class to, you know, to demonstrate different types of science processes and I just I have fun with it that's awesome, that is awesome. Yeah. all right how about the other one what's it about then? so the planets class which so I didn't know about this one yeah yeah right. I, so
0: this is like sad I'm learning so much the, I have to get you here to interview yeah. you to learn things about <laughs>
1: totally. it. you're just upstairs <laughs> so one of the reasons I love being a planetary scientist is we live at a really cool time we are sending spacecraft to basically every planet and we are just learning so much about the about the solar system we we just sent you know, new horizons just went past pluto right mm-hmm. we expected yeah. pluto yeah. small little icy world far from the sun should have long since lost most of its heat uh we expected to find a cold dead world mm-hmm. oh boy were we surprised there is uh there is regions with that that have been recently completely resurfaced in other words there's no impact craters on them we have we have a nitrogen we found a nitrogen ice sea that's convecting from the heat internal so that it's turnover such that there's like no impact craters whatsoever on its surface in other words the surface is less than a million years old oh wow we found faults that look relatively new i mean you could argue that there's more tectonic activity on pluto than there is on mars Oh, wow. Including there's a wispy atmosphere of nitrogen clouds, and and it snows nitrogen, and we can see the nitrogen snow. What? Right, exactly. So yeah. we're like... <laughs> oh, wow. We, so came, we came back from the, with those images with more questions than we left with. Like, okay, mm. we don't understand anything about planetary formation and and how planets, you know, where this heat comes from. So, uh, so it's, it's really fantastic. So the course is really to introduce the students to basically their place in the universe. Like one of my favorite lectures, for example, is, yes, I go through and I talk about the Big Bang all the way through the formation of galaxies and then, uh, and then how, uh, how stars explode and create nebula and how nebulas... Collect together. These are just clouds of dust and gas, and mm. go back and create, you know, create new stars, and so. But my favorite is, is in this lecture is I show them a plot of the periodic table, which most students, okay, eh, okay periodic table. I didn't sign up for a chemistry class, <laughs> but it's a little <laughs> bit different periodic table. What it shows you is the origin of every element in the table. Like uh-huh. those elements came from supernova. Those came from the fusion inside of a big star. Those came from uh, two neutron stars colliding. And suddenly I am saying, the atoms in your body, right? And when I ask you where you're from, and you might say, well, I'm from India. No, no, no. Well, like, go back. Alright. Um, my great-great-grandparents were, you know, from, from, you know, f- from France. No, no. Farther back. Okay, from Africa. Yeah. No. <laughs> farther back. And all the way back to you are star stuff. You are made from the cores of stars and from the explosions of stars and from the oh collisions of stars. And we can now map that to the elements in your body. And I can actually show you what percent of your body has come from supernova and what percent of the body of your body has actually come from the original Big Bang. And so talk about putting your place into the solar system. I the, I that mean, that I, is just uh, a fact. <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! I really appreciate yeah. that lecture. That's yeah. So it's like a whole different bent on where where are you from? Holy cow! Indeed. Mm-hmm. And then of course um, we talk about how the planets are formed and 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 the orbits and and uh, and we do this with you know well actually we'll use some movie clips. In this class, there's a lot more video clips put together by the science teams from all the spacecraft missions. So I can show you mm-hmm. show pictures of Jupiter that most students have never seen. That it's just a rich, unbelievably gorgeous, violent, beautiful reds and oranges and yellows atmosphere. And uh, and then we can even dive down inside Jupiter, and I can show you you know how it was made and why the big planets are made far from the sun, where the, all the rocky planets are close. And just, you know, make it accessible, the science, so they mm-hmm. can actually look out and understand the origin of themselves, the solar system, the sun, everything, with really cool, only months or years old photos of, mm-hmm. of, of all the planets. So. Holy god! All right,
0: last question. Sure. And that's, uh, and I, I want to get your answer on video so that we, we can bring it back and make you do it. Um, could, there's... Way too many rabbit holes to run down with this. And there's so many just absolutely unbelievably awesome stuff. Can we get you to come back to do an episode just on some t- particular content that you've talked about today sometime? Sure. All right. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And outstanding on review. On iTunes or your preferred podcast player. Tweet us your science questions. At Purdue SOS. Until next time, be super. And
1: remember. You are someone's hero. Boiler up. Hammer down.